Please sit back and relax. Nothing's wrong with the set. Allow me to explain. My apartment got robbed. I just don't know it yet. Huh? Last year was quite a year. Burglaries, a New York rite of passage, people swear. Like the first time you see Elmo take his head off in Times Square. Whoa! But last year, when my stuff all got stolen, I wasn't this carefree. Even before he burgled me, my heart felt numb. I was sure as I could be. Day would never come. Hello and There's welcome to Broadway Radios this week on Broadway for Sunday, November 18th, 2018. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, which is available everywhere. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks, Broadway, Broadway Select, and many of the places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Hello. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at filespotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. So uh, both of you made it uh, through the great nor'easter of uh, three hours of bad snow in New York City, and it was all gone the next uh, moment? Mm, It really was. It was amazing. (laughs) And I heard that it uh, actually. I heard that it resulted in the cancellation of at least one show. Um, really? Yeah, ordinary days. I know. Is that the one you mean? Yes. Yeah, because uh, some of the personnel just couldn't get to the theater in time. It seems that uh, New Jersey had a much more difficult time than New York City or Long Island did, or parts north of us. Um, yeah, I saw a lot of people in Jersey get really stuck, and you know, mm. South South Orange is basically Little Broadway. You know, yeah, yeah, <laughs> so many right. people live in South Orange, New Jersey, that are performing and working on Broadway and other aspects, and uh, it seems that that got hit really hard. Well, Bill De Blasio doesn't have responsibility for New Jersey, so at least that he doesn't have to worry about. But for the rest uh. of it. People are not not happy. <laughs> you know, it's very funny. I see a lot of people blaming MTA and Bill de Blasio and things like that. And um, it, oh, yeah. it's, it's so interesting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm on this New York City emergency management um, email list uh, where I get, uh, I get emergency notifications from the city of New York. Um, and it, well before the storm, like 24 hours before the storm, they had the – Got the, I got an email that said that alternate side of the street parking was canceled and they were preparing for this big storm and things like this. And then it seems like they didn't prepare. And so it, it's so odd how that all happens. But the show must go on. So, uh, Michael, when actually did you see a chorus line at Encores? Was it during the storm or after the storm? I saw it on Friday, so it was after the storm. Just after the storm. So tell yeah. us about a chorus line at Encores. Well, for some reason, I wasn't especially looking forward to this production. I thought um, that the Broadway revival, uh, although it was 100% professional in every way and had some really great people in it, for some reason, I thought there was something about it that didn't quite gel. And this uh, Encores presentation, I'm sorry, it's not Encores. It's not technically Encores. It's uh, a New York City Center annual gala presentation of Chorus Line. Uh, Annual gala meaning that they do a show every year, not that they do a Chorus Line every year. Um, 
And uh, yeah, although that, that wouldn't be such a bad idea. Oh, sure uh, would. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that that revival, um, uh, there just to me was something about it that, that there was a, a little rote, and I don't know, it didn't. Uh, it made a point of uh, completely, almost completely, trying to recreate the original production, uh, and that uh, that revival was directed by Bob Avian and choreographed by Bjork Lee, uh, who are the acknowledged as the two great custodians of this show uh, at the behest of Michael Bennett, who, of course, is no longer with us. Um, so, uh, yeah, for for whatever reason, that's how I felt about that revival. And 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 Bob and Bjork uh, are at the were at the helm of this city center production. Uh, so I, I, I don't know. And, and, and also it took forever, uh, for them to announce the cast, uh, which I guess makes sense when you think about it. Uh, but it, it seemed like it was only three weeks before. Uh, and so I couldn't get really excited about it, but then it was announced that there was going to be some really good people in it, including Jay Armstrong Johnson and Ryan Steele, who has been a, a guest on our podcast and, uh, Tony Yazbek in the role of Zach and, uh, several other people that, uh, you know, we are just really great people. Robin Herder as Cassie, et cetera, et cetera. So then I started to get excited. And uh, and so I, I I went and I have to say it was just beautiful. It uh, I uh, maybe partly because of the very short rehearsal period for these shows uh, and also the very short runs. It was less than a week. Um, there was an electricity I felt that was not necessarily present in the revival um and it actually brought me back to the electricity i felt when i saw the original production uh, with the original cast a couple of months into its run uh it it really just was beautifully beautifully done the um with maybe one or two minor exceptions i thought the cast was superb across the board and it uh it adapted beautifully to the city center stage one interesting thing is um it had been um pointed out uh, before this right before this show opened that uh it has always been a part of the concept of a chorus line that the orchestra is invisible because they're really not supposed to be there you know i mean even more so than in a than in a regular musical. Uh, so I was wondering how they were going to handle that because normally in the shows at city center, the orchestra is on stage and visible, uh, at least certainly for the encore shows. Uh, but, um, no, yeah, for this production they, that you could not see them at all. I'm not even a hundred percent sure. I think they were up way upstage, uh, behind a screen scrim or a drop uh, or they might and they might have been in the pit there is a pit there uh, i'm i'm really not sure uh but they you couldn't see them but they sounded great i believe this was the revival orchestrations that were used uh which were st- are still quite similar to the originals and uh i can't tell you how exciting it was to be there it was just amazing uh, i really take my hat off <laughs> which is a appropriate Comment ah. uh, to uh, Bob Avian and Bayork Lee and the entire company. I, uh, I, I, I'll never forget. I only got to see the original uh, with the original cast by luck. I, I was not. Um, I had started 
reviewing uh, shows and, and was getting press tickets already by that point. But during that period, for whatever reason, I was not on the list. So I was not I would not have gone. But uh, I'll never forget a friend of mine asked me uh, when uh, he wa- he had asked a, a girl uh, to go with him because he wanted to date her and she couldn't make it. Uh, so he asked me. <laughs> and so I, I got to see that. And that, needless to say, was a highlight of my theater going life. And, and I, I have some issues with the show, uh, some, some relatively minor issues with the lyrics, uh, some of the lyrics and some of the book. And, um, I, uh, I actually realized, uh, in this case that, uh, the uh, it, for the first time, I realized that the, the, there's a beautiful monologue that the character of Paul delivers uh, towards the end of the show, played by Paul, played, played by Eddie Gutierrez in this production. And there, I, I suddenly realized that, that that there's a part of it that doesn't really make a lot of sense. Um, but I, you know, the emotional content of it is the point, and I think that's true of the whole show. Uh, the score by Marvin Hamlish is is incomparable and it 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 is the essence of broadway and it and this show as many many of us know almost saved broadway because things were really really bad in the mid 70s in terms of the economy uh and the times square area etc etc so this is a show that um that always deserves to be celebrated. And in this case, it was used to, uh, as part of the celebration of the 75th anniversary of city center. So that, that was very appropriate because that theater has been famous for featuring all kinds of entertainment, musicals, uh, dance, opera, etc. Um, uh, I'm really glad I was there and I hope that some of you got to see it. It was just wonderful. It's interesting that uh, Chorus Line is being talked about this week in a, in a, in a great production uh, because we see in the news that um, uh, Equity is revisiting the, uh, the contract of developing new musicals and how actors should participate in the profits going forward of their piece of uh, developing a new musical. And obviously chorus line fits firmly into this category as the original cast of chorus line really uh through um through all the things that i've read and uh and seen documentaries about it participated in the creation of this have you guys seen this um this uh discussion among on message boards with uh equity members uh talking about uh, wanting to participate in the profits of shows like this, sure. And uh, well, it came up with Hamilton quite yeah. famously. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah and yeah, yes, yes. The the chorus line, uh, the original book, uh, is based on the stories of all of these dancers who participated in this workshop that that Michael Bennett did back in the day. And uh, oh, and you know, I uh, I think I mentioned that just less than two weeks ago, I I got to see two of the original cast members. Uh, in uh, in a show at 54 Below, Don Pippin's show, the original conductor and musical director of Chorus Line, he did a show at 54 Below. And so I got to see Donna McKechnie sing a little bit of At the Ballet, a section of that that is apparently based on her story, uh, her real life story. And then I got to see Priscilla Lopez re- recreate her original fabulous performance of Nothing. So to see her do that, you know, and and then see 
see the show again and, and see it, it done here was within two weeks was, was really quite a historic and very moving event for me. All right. So next up uh, in our review section, uh, the three of us got a chance to see American Sun uh, at the Booth Theater. So, Peter, why don't you get us started on American Sun? Uh, this is a play by Christopher Demos Brown uh, and Kenny Leon, a very acclaimed and Tony winning director, directed it. Uh, I thought it was terrific. Um, I love plays where there are uh, dissenting points of view and everybody has a good point. And I think that's what happens here. Everybody has a good point. So <clears throat> what's happened here? Well, um, we're in a, a, a police station office uh, and um, – Kerry Washington uh, plays Kendra, who's very upset because something has happened to her son. He may have been arrested. He may have been in an accident. She's getting precious little information about her son. To make matters worse, uh, her husband will show up. And while he is connected to uh, law enforcement agencies and may ask a few more punching questions and get a few more results, they're estranged. Um, I get the impression that he's found somebody new and uh, has dumped her. Uh, the fact that they're an interracial couple is certainly important as well. So um, what it is is simply a debate ultimately, and I know a lot of people don't like it for that reason, between the law enforcement people and uh, the parents uh, who are demanding answers and the police are none too quick to give any. Uh, we get the impression they don't know very much, frankly, um, but that doesn't assuage the parents. We can all understand that point of view, too. You know, when your kid's in trouble, you want to know what's going on. So uh, for 90 minutes, there's a lot of this. And what, what I really liked about the play was though we never meet the kid, never, we somehow feel that we do because he's described so vividly and uh, – there are so many points of view about what he's been doing lately that may not be in his best interest. A fully formed picture comes to, into our mind and we really get to know him. So as a result, getting to know him means that we are becoming as invested in his fate as the parents are. And I will tell you that um, the audience was really with this. Um, this is one of those times to use that famous cliche of edge of the seats, because at one point there's a reaction from the audience that you don't hear very often that really shows how emotionally involved they've been. So um, so I liked it a lot more than many people have. I've heard many people condemn it as a polemic and uh, it's so obvious because uh, he says, she says, all that kind of business. I was with it every step of the way and I thought Stephen Pasquale as the husband was terrific. I thought Kerry Washington um, as the mother was terrific as well. Uh, an actor named Eugene Lee, who I don't really know, um, plays a lieutenant who comes in late in the play. And boy, he ain't taking no guff, I'll tell you that right now. And um, the, the play takes a very unexpected turn when he comes in. And I don't mean that he gives information about the kid, that, and that's what makes it interesting. He still doesn't know anything either. But what he when he does um, a locking of horns with... Um, Stephen Pasquale's character, I mean, they lock horns. And so uh, it gets even more potent as time goes on. So um, a new American play by a writer that uh, isn't famous, uh, I think it deserves every break it can get. And um, I hope it gets it. Okay, Michael, what did you think? 
I completely agree. I loved it. I uh, I had heard from some people about plot holes in this play. Damned if I could see any. Did you see any? No, I'm with you. I'm with you. Not a single one. Not a single one. And I was so happy that this was such a good play because, frankly, I've seen some plays recently both on and off Broadway that seem to have been produced only because they're about hot-button political issues and perhaps they you know, they represent a certain demographic or whatever, and I feel like they were produced for that reason and not in terms of quality. But this one absolutely deserves to be on Broadway. I, I, I really, really loved it. Um, the... <clears throat> the writing, the acting, the the production, uh, it's so. Uh, and I, I thought it. I was worried about it because it sounded like it might be a polemic. It sounded like it might be very schematic. Uh, there, are, there are things about the construction that that would seem schematic. The fact that uh, it's an interracial couple, the fact that one of the uh, law enforcement people is white and the other one is black. Uh, P- Peter didn't mention that, but oh, that's the, true. Yeah. Eugene yeah. Lee character is black and it, and it makes, it, you know, it, so you might think, oh, well, you know, he's trying to balance everything and, you know, like balance the scales, but it just, I thought it worked absolutely beautifully in terms of the story. I completely agree about the edge of the seat quality. Um, and I, yeah. And, and the structure of it is very, very, very interesting and extremely effective. The fact that the Lieutenant comes in quite late into the, uh, proceedings winds up working very well. And the play ends very, very, very abruptly Mm -hmm. in, in a way that is, that is, absolutely right for what happens and of course i can't say anymore but i urge everyone to see this i am not i had not previously been familiar with kerry washington because i guess she's primarily known for her tv work i thought she was excellent and i think that uh, Stephen pasquale and jeremy jordan were both great these are this is a case where we have two uh performers who have two of the greatest voices, singing voices on Broadway, but I think they're smart enough to realize <laughs> that if a really great play comes along, that they should do it. Um, and so they did. And Eugene Lee uh, also, uh, I'm not not very familiar with him, but he seemed perfect and excellent in that role. He seemed like he really was this character of uh, Lieutenant John Stokes. So... Um, yeah, I I urge everyone to see this. I have nothing negative to say about it. I saw it as well, uh, and I'm going to agree with Michael and Peter. Uh, I think that this is a really uh, not only a great play, but an important play for a lot of people to see, mm-hmm. to understand the dynamics of what's going on here. Uh, Kerry Washington uh, most recently, uh, and I think became famous on a television show called Scandal, uh, that uh, I, w- I was a fan of it has since uh, stopped. Uh, it, it went on for four, maybe five years or something like that. Certainly made her a big Hollywood star and a big network television star. Uh, previous to that, she had done uh, a play on Broadway called Race. Uh, she was in that in 2009, 2010. Uh, so uh, yes. We have yeah. seen her before on Broadway and I'm really excited that she has come back. Uh, to Broadway, and it was great to see, see Stephen Pasquale and my wife. And uh, after the show, uh, after the curtain came down, and we were talking about it, she said, uh, "Couldn't they just give him one song to hum? 
you know. Uh, <laughs> she's she's still stuck on the bridges of Madison County, you know. <laughs> I love you know, seeing that. Thank you for mentioning race. I really didn't like that play. I think this this play is far better than that. Oh, play. I agree. I, yeah. yeah far you know, I agree. Uh, and Ray- by the way, I, I did like race, but nevertheless, I do think this play is better. Oh, okay. Yeah. So race <laughs> as a mammoth play and, uh, you know, mammoth hit and miss. And he's uh, binary for a lot of people. Either they love him <laughs> or hate him uh, in individual productions. You know, I there's some of Mammoth shows that I just love, American Buffalo type of thing, oh, yeah. like, like oh, yeah. Gary, yeah. and then other shows that I just, they were just not for me. Speaking so, of Glenn Gary, yeah. um, there was a lot of noise about an all-female production. Yes. I haven't heard anything about that lately. Is that still on? Um, there, the Glenn Gary all-female thing, I think, I think it was scheduled. Just in, I think uh, it was just in the very early planning stages, right? Yeah. Okay. I haven't yeah. heard a thing about it in a long time now. I, you know, I'll have to report back to you on that because I think Matt Tamanini talked about it on Today on Broadway, and uh, I think he's got more information on that. I, I don't recall the details of it, but I remember it was in the works. And uh, uh, speaking of all female productions, well, I guess the uh, the company production is not all female, but the roles are reversed in London production right. of Company, and there's a lot of rumors of that uh, going to be transferred yeah. to New York this spring. Hope so. Hope so. Yeah. The um the Glenn Gary, I think it was Amy Morton who was mm, yeah. spearheading that. Uh-huh. Yeah. All right. So uh that's American Sun over at the Booth Theater. It's running a limited engagement through January twenty seventh, twenty nineteen. Right now that's what it's scheduled for. So uh get over and check that out. We have uh I'll say six thumbs up here. You know? <laughs> uh, right. All right, from six thumbs up to um Something else. Uh, King Kong opened up at the Broadway Theater, and uh, all three of us got a chance to see it. So, Michael, why don't you start us off at King Kong? King Kong is, I would say, a bad idea gone wrong. Uh, I uh, love, (laughs) love, love, love the classic 1933 film. Uh, I'm less of a fan of the two two remakes, uh, two major remakes anyway, uh, that I can think of. Uh, The interesting thing – (laughs) well – interesting uh, about this uh, that I've been spouting to many people recently because I just think it's fascinating. Uh, this is a musical and it there's absolutely no reason for it to have been a musical. Uh, the main character does not sing. It's a, it's a puppet who doesn't even speak. Um, so that that's one reason why it shouldn't have been a musical, but also just – the story has always been about uh, really kind of about action and, and adventure and thrills. And, and it's just I, I don't think that it's good fodder for a musical. Uh, I, I am of the opinion that almost anything can be a good musical with enough talent uh, applied to it. But I just don't think it was worth the effort. And the interesting thing about that is that the book, um, the indescribably awful book, for this show was written by Jack Thorne, who wrote the very, very good stage adaptation of, uh, of Harry Potter that's now on Broadway, Harry Potter and the Cursed, Cursed Child. Um, and there, the interesting thing is that I, I think it's fair to say that until this Harry Potter opened, there was a general feeling that uh, if any show, any Broadway show was intended to be a big, long running hit. It had to be a musical uh, because the days when 
straight plays ran for a really long time. Those days have been gone for 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 really quite a while. Uh, so I think that. I suspect that this King Kong was made into a musical because of that theory. But um, but now we have Harry Potter, which seems to be proving that a uh, a show does not have to be a musical to sell tremendous amounts of tickets and and have a really healthy run for a long time. Uh, and it has the same author as King Kong. So I think maybe if Harry Potter had happened just a little earlier, everyone involved in King Kong would have said, you know what, we don't have to <laughs> we don't have to knock ourselves out. We can just do a non-musical version of this story on stage and, and have fantastic tech and uh, really wow the audience and we'll have a big hit. So I'm sorry that didn't happen because one of the worst things about this show is the music, the music and lyrics. Uh, songs by Eddie Perfect uh, is how it's built and, and the songs are far from perfect, uh, let me tell you. Um, the story has been quite significantly reconfigured from the original in, in several respects. Uh, all of the rewrites are for the worst. The tech, uh, including the puppetry of King Kong himself, as you may have heard, is is spectacular. And uh, But I can't quite honestly say worth the ticket price because the story to me is so ab- abhorrent uh, so awfully written and, and the score that you really have only moments when you can enjoy the puppetry and the tech. Uh, that's how I felt. Uh, I, I guess if you can maybe get in on a discount ticket, uh, to enjoy the tech, then, then I would suggest you do that. But it's not something that I would say that one should play, uh, that one should pay big bucks for. Um, the, Writing is so bad that I felt uh, that, well, uh, there are only three, really only three people in this show who are leads and no supporting roles of any size whatsoever. I would say that all of these three people, well, actually, no, that's not true. One of these three leads uh, managed to somehow give a performance that really connected with the audience despite um, the writing. I think actually because that role is, is better written than the, uh, than the other two. And, and this uh, actor I'm speaking of is Eric Lochtefeld. The other two actors did not. And in fact, the male lead uh, who I've, I've seen and enjoyed in several previous shows off Broadway, I thought he came across so badly in this show that I, I I'm, you know, I'm, I don't want to mention his name in this case. Uh, I think that it's not his fault. And I certainly hope that he just goes on to something better. And in the meantime, just enjoys the paycheck, because I think as far as artistically that this this is a total wash, especially for him and so many of the other people. So that's, uh, I, I'm, I'm really sorry that I, that I hated it so much, but that's my feeling. Okay. Peter, what did you think? You know, some years ago, there was a book published of uh, the worst movies ever, and they quoted reviews for Lost Horizon, uh, the 1973 musical remake. And they went on and on and on with all these terrible reviews. And then to be funny, they said, but there was a voice in the wilderness. And they, um, somebody, I think, from a Kansas City newspaper talking about what a delight um, Lost Horizon is. Well, 
That's the way I feel because I am totally in the minority here. Totally. Nobody sees King Kong, uh, the, the musical, the way I do. And I'm not saying I'm right. I'm only telling you that this is one of those experiences where I am completely in um, <laughs> out of step with everybody else. So because I found the first 45 minutes so engrossing that I didn't care if the title character ever showed up. Um, and I thought the book was quite good. I, it took a great deal from the 33 film, some from the 76 and some from the 2005. But I think uh, that he got uh, Jack Thorne got the best out of every um every one of those three movies. And um, well, why? Well, because um, Anne comes to Manhattan, um, not unlike star to be in Annie, uh, wanting to have a Broadway career. And she really believes she's going to be queen of New York. Uh, in time, she does become a queen, <laughs> but to a very unexpected king. So um, I, I like that very much. So there are many fruitless auditions. And by the way, um, during those auditions, we hear some of the few songs that are right for the period because we are still in 1933. So, so she's really down and out and uh, loses her innocence about becoming queen of New York in, in quick order. So, um, there she is in a restaurant down and out. And, um, the guy uh, who runs the restaurant asks her to leave, but luckily, uh, Carl Denham is in the next booth and, uh, he's been looking for the right actress to star in his next picture. And, and he decides will do. <clears throat> so, uh, I think it's a very nice scene. Um, we really get the impression that uh, he cares about her. That will turn out to be not true. And what I found really interesting in this um, version of King Kong is that there's no love story between human beings. Oh, there will be one between mammals, but not human beings. And this is the first time in any of the three movies that there hasn't been a love story between two human beings. And I thought that was a, a daring choice. And uh, because I'm telling you, he knows that he's using her. She knows that he knows he's using her. She's using him. Uh, if he can help her to become a star, that's good enough. And I found that refreshing. That was something that we don't have at all. Yes, um, Eric Lochtefeld, an actor who I've mentioned in the past, who I've, I first saw when he was in high school in Massachusetts, um, is terrific as a very low-level crewman, and um, he tells her his name is Lumpy, and she says, no, I won't call you that. What's your real name? So I think that's solid writing, too, because it shows us something about her character, that she um, wants to get into uh, being nicer to him, to making him feel more like a human being, because he barely does, and, uh, and so uh, things like that, little details like that, I thought were very strong in the writing. So... Um, so after 45 minutes, uh, out comes King Kong, which everybody has marveled at. And I wasn't remotely impressed with King Kong the way everybody else was. Um, the closest that anybody else has come to thinking the way I uh, have thought about this is um, Adam Feldman and David Finkel. And I'll go into their comments in a moment. But um, they call uh, they call him a puppet um, in the press. I say, but marionette would really be a more accurate term. Um he looks terrific, uh, but he's held up by more strings than you'll find in a symphony orchestra conducted by Pinocchio. I mean, I'm telling you that there are so many wires and, and they don't even make a concerted effort really to um, mask the 10 people around him who are, um, yes, they're in black, but it's not Bun Raku. 
you know, where the faces are covered. So the faces are um, certainly there, and you can certainly see them. And as time goes on, they even get emboldened about it. I, I mean, they're always there, and especially in the famous Empire State Building scene, which disappointed me, by the way, because I thought I'd see more of the building than, than um, they show us. But suddenly you see a guy flow through the air with the greatest of ease, um, you know, near him, 102 stories up, or whatever that building is. So... Um, they're just always there. And the famous scene where um, Kong kills the serpent that comes onto the scene, um, there they are manipulating the serpent. They're still wearing black and the serpent is green. I would think that they would give them green outfits at least at that point in time. But I'm telling you, the illusion is just not good enough as far as I'm concerned. And, you know, it, 64 years ago, whatever it was, when um, Peter Pan flew onto the scene and Mary Martin had wires. Okay, that was a very low-tech era. But, you know, we're used to uh, more sophisticated stuff now, and certainly <clears throat> a generation brought up on CGI expects more. And I expected this King Kong to work on his own. I didn't think there would be puppeteers. I didn't think we'd see them at all times. To me, it spoils the illusion totally. So um, I was very completely disappointed in that. This this might be a show that's best enjoyed from the last row of the balcony because you might not know it as much. Um, so, um, so yeah, and there's a on, on his back. There is this brace, um, in essence, uh, so that people can climb up on top of him uh, at times. That it doesn't happen often, but they do it. Um, a brace. And there's no bones to hide the brace whatsoever. There it is. It's a steel ladder, in essence. You know, So um, it, it, it comes – does Skull Island have a resident veterinary, a chiropractor? I don't know. Who put this brace on his back? So, so I mean – so it just did not work for me at all. I think if you have to work Kong with wires and a staff of 10, maybe the show isn't worth doing under the – and boy, I know people are going to agree with that statement but for different reasons. So um, – I so that was my t take on it, especially in the second act. I was I was very interested that Anne was interested in animal rights. Um, she wants to bring Kong back to the island. She doesn't want him exploited. And this is where I talk about the love story coming in. So, um, frankly, this is more of a, a spectacle than a musical. Um, there are twenty four songs and three reprises, and but it still comes across as a, a play with music rather than a, a musical. Um, ten of the songs are instrumental for that matter. Others are fragments that seem to start and stop. They don't build momentum. There's even a stretch <laughs> so devoid of music that it rivals the famous one in 1776. Um, I think if a cast album is made, um, it might well be the shortest one since bloody, bloody Andrew Jackson weighed in at 28 minutes. But anyway... Um, so uh, Adam Feldman and David Finkel um, liked the puppet immeasurably and both said that that's the reason to see the show. But Adam mentioned that uh, at times it looks like a balloon in the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade with all those wires. And David Finkel said, oh, you know, um, it sort of looks like the Lilliputians with Gulliver um, with all these wires trying to uh, pin uh -huh. him down. So, you know, uh, but they liked the sh uh, him more than I did. So what can I tell you? Um, the the story itself is what, what captivated me, and um, Kong did not. And again, I expect nobody in the world to agree with me on that, except perhaps Jack Thorne. Jack Thorne will agree with me, I imagine, to some degree, or at least the part where I think his book is good. So... Uh, 
Now, this is going to be an interesting uh, situation on Broadway. How long will this last? This is a very good acid test about the fact that we talk about, you know, reviews don't matter as much anymore. We'll see if they do or don't, because um, certainly they they have no reviews to trumpet. Uh, And... um, Right. So this is I mean, it's a lot more complicated than that in this case because because of the the cost of the show. And and yeah, you know. Yeah, I know. But uh, with reviews like this, you usually open on Thursday and you close on Saturday. Um, And those were that type of reviews. But but but, um, you know, it certainly has name recognition. Uh, It certainly has the curiosity factor. Uh, And I'm going to be very interested to see how long this lasts. And I won't be surprised if it lasts a long time. The reviews for Spider-Man were pretty putrid, too. And granted, there was a lot more publicity about that. And God knows how many people went to see people injured, you know, and that schadenfreude away. But but, uh, I don't know how long King Kong will be around. But I won't be surprised if, indeed, people are just interested in seeing this puppet on stage, which, as I say, everybody loves. So that may carry them through. It might very well. So what is the, uh, you know, we... There was talk, although anecdotally, uh, never I never saw data that was hard data to back it up, that Cats ran for so long because it was something that somebody from out of town could come see and didn't need to know the English language ah, to see it. Ah, good point, James. Yeah, indeed, that could very well work in their no, favor, so, too. So is King Kong the only thing on Broadway right now that fits that bill, that people could watch it without knowing the language? I can't think of anything else. I mean, hmm. But um, uh, Riedel, Michael Riedel wrote a column this week about um, the producers of King Kong expecting terrible reviews and planning for that and didn't really care about it, um, mm-hmm. so they say. Um, we have to say that uh, King Kong has been performing for about four weeks and playing for 95% plus audiences. Uh, and uh, last week... <clears throat> Excuse me. Last week's grosses, uh, the, the week of November 11th, actually, the preceding uh, couple of days this week that uh, we don't know those numbers yet, but 915,000 uh, at 95 percent. And that was a lot because of a lot of discounts and comping and things like that. So we'll have to see, you know, come January what these grosses look like. Um, because certainly, yeah. you know, we're getting into that Thanksgiving to New Year's thing where you know nearly anybody can sell a ticket including perfect crime you know mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. so uh you caught that by the I, way just celebrated his 31st yes. anniversary <laughs> exactly. 31 years for perfect crime i hope they had their um party at baskin robbins that would be a good oh. idea <laughs> you know it's just baskin robbins call it 31 flavors anymore i don't know you well, know, really, don't they? Uh, I, I don't know if they do. They might, you know, but they, since Baskin-Robbins has been combined into those Pizza Hut, Baskin-Robbins Pizza Hut, multi-food venues, I don't know what they do. So uh, it's been reported that $35 million was spent to open this show. Uh, you know, from my standpoint, I could see the $35 million. I was also very interested in seeing, uh, you know, what they did did in the Broadway theater if it was just mm. um, insofar as changing it uh, because when uh, Kong steps we, you feel it in the Broadway theater you feel the floor shake and I don't know if they had done anything to the sense around <laughs> yeah that type of thing 
Um, and the sound is good. The yeah. sound. I, I think that this was tremendously bold producing. I, I think it was. Uh, I, I thought the show was terrible. I thought uh-huh. it was immensely bold producing. And the thing is, is that you have, you know, this idea as a producer and you go down this road and you go down this road and you go down this road. And at one point or another, it's too late to stop it. And you just go with what you've got and you make the best of it. And I think that that's what's happening here. I think uh, from all reports out of Australia was that they went through a number, a number of very uh, familiar names to anybody who listens to this podcast. Um, a number of familiar names to they asked them to write the show uh, and they put a lot of money and development in Australia. Is Australia the new out of town? You know, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, you know, it seems like you can't get out of town far enough uh, exactly. in, the nor- in the northern in the northern hemisphere. But it seems like yeah. Australia is safe enough to not kill a show. Um, because I think that if this had been done in Los Angeles or in London, I think it would have never made it to Broadway. Um, I was also talking, you and Peter, you talked about the Kong Handlers, and they reminded me of the Angel Shadows in Angels in America. Mm, Did, uh-huh, uh, uh-huh. And uh, I didn't mi- so much mind all of the mechanical evidentiary uh, people that were there. My wife hated it. She was like, why couldn't they do it? But interesting enough, these same producers uh, produced a show at Madison Square Garden and toured around North America, and I think around the world, called Walking with Dinosaurs. And uh, basically they had these huge uh, dinosaurs, 30, 40 feet tall, that walked around Madison Square Garden and they were really lifelike and they screamed at the audience and scared people and things like that. And they had these same exact sort sort of technology and handlers and things like that for walking with dinosaurs. So I didn't expect anything different for King Kong. And also I had been prepared because I saw some of the... uh, some of the videos that the show had released prior to the opening. Uh, interestingly enough, we sat, uh, our tickets were fourth row center for, uh, in the orchestra. And after the first act, I said to my wife, I said, I, I can't watch the show from here. I'm, I, uh. I, I can't see the whole picture. It's so close. Mm. We actually went back and sat in the last row on the balcony. Oh, wow. really? <laughs> uh, yeah. And so you, you had mentioned that. And I, it's such a tremendously different v- view. Sure. I mean, yeah. um, I thought it was really, really interesting, the, the difference there. I, I think that further is better in this. I think the more expensive t- ticket should be in the back. <laughs> uh. Well, another thing I noticed is, uh, did you notice that every scene involving Kong takes place at night or in, uh, or like in the jungle in the dark? And I think they, you know, they did that purposely yeah. to make an attempt to to uh, make the wires, whatever, less visible. Like you, James, I, I, it didn't bother me because I was also prepared for it. And I just figured, well, that's how they have to do it. There are some... Uh, aspects of the tech that that are a little disappointing even if you love it overall uh it's difficult for them to get kong on and off the stage except by flying him up yeah. and down and so there was one point where they they managed to make him walk off stage left i remember but uh there are other things they can't do and uh, i was also disappointed like peter with the that we only saw the very top of the empire state building and it didn't even frankly look like the empire state building oh, it didn't. and no then spire. He, yeah yeah, and then when he fell off, he you, all you see is him kind of, sort of, 
fall back and then it is a blackout because they, there's nowhere for him to go. And then um, there were some other things. Did anyone notice this? Uh, when, when Kong escapes in New York and he's running through New York, all of the buildings are on fire. Mm-hmm. Why are all the buildings on fire? He might have knocked into one building or two and, and caused a gas make explosion. it on fire. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, but uh, yeah, I mean, that was just like s- something someone said, oh, it'll look coo- cooler if, if everything's on fire. But it doesn't make any sense, folks. I don't know, uh, you know. Michael, have you ever seen the movies, the Kong versus Godzilla? You know, Godzilla threw uh, spit fire and set everything on fire. So, uh, but he's uh, not uh, in yeah. this. No, exactly. I'm thinking they <laughs> made a crossover attempt there. Maybe. But uh, what did you guys think of the, the serpent? I was like, you spent so much you you spent so much money on this Kong thing. You didn't do well at the Empire State Building, and that serpent was terrible. I was like, "What?" You know, it it, it seems like a unfinished thought. He looked uh, the serpent looked like one of those things in a in a Chinese New Year's. Yeah, parade. exactly. Um, but let's give credit to Peter England for the for the projections. Uh, they oh, really the, are the terrific. The video wall and projections were great. beautiful. They really were. Yeah. And uh, the scene where they're on the boat, um, a, a lot of people mm-hmm. said, "Gee, I almost got seasick." Because yeah. uh, it really very skillful uh, as far as that's concerned. Um, but James, you bring up a point that is so wonderful, and that is the point that when things start accelerating. It's very hard to stop the train that once a production really gets going, so many people are reluctant to say, you know, this isn't going to work. Uh, you just keep going and you hope for the best, you yeah. know, um, the legs diamond syndrome, you might call it. But uh, but really, it's a very good point that you make there. And um, this may very well be the case here. Still. You know, um, I don't expect anybody to agree with me, and um, and <laughs> nobody has. But but um, I do want to um, file this minority report. Do so, you do you guys both uh, agree with me that maybe if Harry Potter had happened sooner, that they would have not felt they had to make this a musical? No. So you think they 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 always felt that that was a necessary part of the process? Yeah, I mean, it, it, uh, short of Harry Potter, I'm trying to think of. Well, there isn't. I, uh, mean, I, don't, yeah. I don't think there isn't another example. Short of Harry well, Potter, yeah, like uh, you know, short of Harry Potter, I, I don't think that um, plays make as much money as musicals do. Mean, and, and and even at that, I bet you that even though Harry Potter is selling gangbuster tickets. They have spent a tremendous amount of money, or maybe not uh, netting as much profit as as King Kong will net, mm. if if they run run equivalently. Mm. But um, one of the things I wanted to bring up, uh, if it were a play, we wouldn't have such great choreography. Ah, oh, I thought the choreography was truly terrible. Really? Yeah. Me too. Yeah, me too. Really, <laughs> I I thought that. Uh, I thought that the choreography, the opening scene, I really liked, and one of the one of the things that um, uh, that I felt didn't serve this production well was having a combined director choreographer because I felt like every time the book got weak, they res- they resulted into turning it into a dance number to try to tell the story, um, and uh, while. Uh, you know, I'm, I guess I'm the minority report on the choreography. I thought that, and the ensemble was very, very strong, uh, and did uh, really a, a amazing things on stage. I thought the direction was was really bad, and I couldn't really parse out whether that was a function of the book or a function of the director. 
But there it is. Uh, one of the things we also heard about this week is that um, King Kong will be in the Thanksgiving, uh, CBS Thanksgiving broadcast, but it's from the theater, so they won't even have King Kong walking down Broadway. Really? Yeah. Oh, oh, that's too bad. <laughs> All right. Let's move forward into the next thing up. Um, the three of us got a chance to see Mike Birbiglia as the new one. Uh, and so uh, let me start us off with that one uh, by saying that this is in a Broadway house, in a Broadway theater, and I thought to myself, having seen my Birbiglia before, I was like, does this really belong on Broadway? And I'm still unsure about that, although I had a great time. I had a really good time seeing the new one uh, last night. I was uh, there at the same night uh, Peter was there, and Michael saw a different production, uh, a different performance, excuse me. Um, but Mike tells this story about uh, his life and uh, his his marriage and his challenges that have been before him and uh, having a child and his experience with his daughter. Uh, a lot of it... Uh, I, my wife and I laughed really hard because it, it seemed like it was an everyman story that it, the mm -hmm. same sort of things that he went through, uh, we went through as well, even to the equivalent of we have this ongoing argument for 10 or more years about the color of our couch. And <laughs> I said it was green and she said it was gray. And Berbigley had exactly the same thing on the stage. <laughs> she talked about that. We could not stop laughing. It was so, so funny and relatable to us. And, you know, we've got a daughter and we went through a lot of the conversations that he and his wife went through. And our daughter's just about the same age as his daughter. And so it, it was a really special evening for me. I'm still not sure it's a Broadway show. And, you know, I think that it, it was it's in a Broadway theater because a Broadway theater is available for a short period of time. And this is a limited run. So I'd love to hear what uh, the both of you think about this. So, Michael, what did you think? I loved it. Um, yes, I'm sure it's what we call an interim booking. Um, although in this case, uh, um, maybe that's not the completely right word because the court theater is scheduled for a major renovation. Uh, and I think that well, certainly M. Butterfly closed much sooner than anyone expected. And I, I suspect, uh, you know, they're just trying to keep it full until the, the renovation actually starts. Um, so it's, uh, fine with me. It's of course not, not the kind of thing you normally see on Broadway, but, um, the night I went, uh, certainly the orchestra, uh, was full anyway. And, and the audience was it, wonderfully responsive, uh, and it, it. I felt like it was where it belonged. Um, I, I did. This is the show that I did see on the night of the storm, and it was not pleasant getting to the theater. The the, the subway ride that normally took twenty five minutes took about forty five minutes. Uh, when I got off with my friend at Forty Second Street, it was so crowded that I, uh, I on the platform that I actually was feared for my life uh, and was very difficult to get out. Um, and so uh, we were not in, we were not in a good mood, but he is so funny and charming uh, that he removed all of that and, and just put a smile on our face and made us laugh. I think he's, um, I I'm not, really uh that big into stand-up if if that's the word uh so i don't know that many uh stand-up comedians i don't 
I think he's very rare in in the type of persona that he has as a comedian. Uh, I, I I don't know any of the others that are very very come across as very sweet and uh, and charming and nice guy regular guy types of people. Uh, they usually have uh, I think comedians usually have some kind of a quirky edge to them. But he but that's his thing and he does it so well. It really seems like that's what. The, what he is in real life. I mean, I have not met the gentleman, but I, but he seems so so nice and sweet and funny and charming and every, you know, it's like someone that everyone wants to be friends with. He's he's really great. The uh, this show is directed by Seth Barish. Um, it's done on a basically completely bare stage at the Court Theater, except for one. Um, reveal a big set element that happens towards the end and and got a tremendous response from the audience i'm certainly not going to reveal that but that's uh i think that was very well planned and very well timed um also i had seen a, a previous version of this show off broadway but it seemed to me that it was very different as far as the content so um so even if you did see that i i would urge you to see this one i think it's a wonderful evening and you're you're just going to have a wonderful time with Mike Birbiglia. Uh, Peter, uh, what did Pete- you think? Well, it's very nice to hear that um, Michael responded to it so much because a lot of people might think that you have to be a parent to see this show and really appreciate it. Um, mm. I mean, it did bring back a lot of memories to me, though I have to say that I mean this. When my son came home from the hospital, he did not keep us up one night ever, uh-huh. ever. It took us a long time to realize it's because the kid loves to sleep. He's lazy, but that's another story. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, I, I'm very glad to hear that, Michael, that um, you could uh, enjoy it so much. I did too. And um, it certainly brought back a lot of memories um, because what does happen here is you learn that when you give birth to a child, suddenly you have a new and unforgiving boss in your life because um, you have to cater to that kid's whims. And Berbigli goes into a great deal of uh, talk before he became a father and how reluctant he was by seeing other people having their children, uh, especially his brother, who uh, at one point he says to him, let's go to a concert. The brother says, I can't go to a concert. I have kids. And you know he gets angry with um, Berbiglia because he doesn't understand that. Right. And, and he points out the fact that um, people with children are miserable, he actually says. And, you know, a lot of parents are going to say, oh, you know, I, I remember New York Magazine years ago had a, an article on this subject and said, but most parents believe that it is all worth it from one wet kiss or a piano recital. And um, there are certain uh, liabilities, of course, to having a kid, and they will drive you crazy from time to time. But on the other hand, um, there are some wonderful things, needless to say, about having kids, especially when they're young and they think you're the sun and the moon. Um, I still remember vividly when uh, my kid was three years old and came into the house, he was playing outside with friends, and, Daddy, Daddy! And my wife and I looked at each other. My God, what happened? Daddy, he comes in. Is there such a thing as Bigfoot? You know, and I remember my wife saying, no, no. Um, And daddy, is this? I was the authority 
I had all the answers. I was the God. Yeah. And now, of course, if I told my kid that George Washington was the first president, he wouldn't believe me. But back then, you know, I mean, so that part of it is is interesting as well, where you become a God to your uh, child. And Rabigli certainly talks a lot about that type of thing. Uh, We hear about sibling rivalry. Do we ever hear about parental rivalry? Because um, (laughs) he notices that uh, the child is gravitating much more to his wife than to him Mm. and uh, that the wife uh, certainly treats him. Um, as uh, the second class citizen in his own home because um, the baby comes first, you know. So um, so all these factors uh, really do um, relate very well to uh, the real parental situation. So, um, uh, and by the way, um, uh, there's a line into the woods that um, uh, uh, that applies here. I'm not sure if I'm quoting it, but um, you know, our child was hard to come by, and certainly their child was hard to come by too. And that's part of the show as well. When you hear mm-hmm. why it was so hard to come by, and uh, that's something that many of us uh, didn't have to contend with when we had our children. So, and you know, um, a, a perception I've had. Um, I'll never forget this. Um, when when my wife gave birth to our child, and uh, they said came out and they said you have a son. Um, okay, great. You know that's I wanted a boy. Wonderful. You know. So, I, but I, what I wasn't prepared for when I walked in and saw that child for the first time, and it was the oddest thing. Suddenly, I saw in my mind's eye a car's gas gauge that when you turn on the car, Ah. goes from E to F, you know, zoom, if you have a full tank of gas. And I I went in there empty of love, and yet, as soon as I saw that kid, zoom, it went up to F. Um, It was, that was the image in my head. And while Berbiglia doesn't have an image like that, or frankly, (laughs) one that strong as I I feel, um, it is certainly true that uh, he does come to love his child and um and he does make it clear that um if it's not exactly worth it it's virtually worth it or almost worth it um so uh so yeah i i I do think it's a worthwhile endeavor and um he does have a very interesting delivery because i noticed that whenever the audience laughs he laughs at his own joke too. He smiles a lot when they don't laugh, but when they laugh, that gives him license to laugh. So watch for that if you go to see the show. Uh, so, but I, I, I do think the people who are contemplating having a child should go see this one. They may very well find it a cautionary tale. Are either one of you fans of Johnny Carson when he was doing the Tonight Show? Yeah, yeah, I remember him well. Sure. I, I thought that, that was the most endearing part of Johnny Carson was that he laughed at himself when the audience laughed, and I thought that that was uh, a fun part of it. And, it and, and I keep thinking of of remnants of of Johnny Carson when I see Mike Birbiglia. I think this is the third or fourth time I've seen Mike, uh, and I'm a big fan of This American Life and Ira Glass, uh, who produced this on mm. Broadway, uh, and this sort of uh, telling of the story – um uh and uh i think that this this was a really wonderful production and it's it's also limited engagement so if you get a chance to see it i also have a feeling that this is going to be recorded in some way i think mm. did i hear that officially or unofficially 
So uh, hopefully you'll be able to get to see it. And also Mike does, uh, he alludes uh, and talks about his life on the road as a storyteller. Uh, I, I'm not sure he actually calls himself, uh, he says I'm in the joke business a lot. Uh, yeah, he does, uh, yeah, I'm in the joke yeah. business, but I don't think he calls himself a comedian. I think he mm. calls himself a storyteller. Yeah. Um, and uh, and the very he said, I, I was in a hundred cities, and there aren't actually a hundred cities, but you know, you usually can find me in an Applebee's in some sort of uh, Oklahoma place uh, telling telling these things. Uh, it's also a good insight into uh, an artist uh, and how they have to. Uh, you know, take their art to make a living in many different places and that it's it's not a tremendously glamorous life. Uh, no, and uh, what is nice, too, which we haven't discussed, he has a wonderful way with a phrase, um, and um, he's a very skillful writer. Um, he doesn't just give you the facts. I mean, he does it in a very entertaining way. For example, when he said his wife, when she got pregnant, Jen um, started eating like a college freshman. And, um, and that's a great line because it, the best comedy is true comedy. And uh, there is really a statistic that when kids go away to college, they wind up gaining a lot of weight in that first year. Um, so probably from junk food because their their uh, parents aren't cooking for them. Um, that may be the reason. But anyway, so the, there's, there's wonderful turns of phrases that um, that make it a very rich experience as well. There are uh, two two other things on him. He does something so well. He'll do this thing where he sets something up. He'll mention something. And then 10 minutes later, he'll say, and then I said, blah, 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 blah. And the audience goes, oh, and he goes, I know. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and, and the, he just does that so well. And the other thing is, I don't know if you guys saw it. Uh, Mike just did a, a little thing in the New York Times. They talked to him about how he deals with cell phones. Yeah, because, you know, he, he's one of the rare situations where he's directly engaging with the audience so he can deal with it and has to deal with it, I suppose, in a way that others don't. And he he talks about the line he you know, he has to walk uh, the fine line he has to walk in doing that. And I, I just thought it was very, very instructive and very interesting. Yeah. That is uh, true. I'll put a link to that New York Times article yes. on cell phones in the show notes so people can read it. It's really, really wonderful. I'm glad you brought it up. I meant to bring it up, and I, I forgot to. Um, at Mike Berbigley is the new one. Uh, I, Peter and I were there last night, was Saturday evening. Uh, and uh, just to mention, something happened off stage. It was in my row. Scott Siegel was back at the theater. Uh, Scott Siegel... Um, uh, some of our listeners would know Scott from producing uh, shows at Town Hall, and he and his wife uh, wrote a column at Talking Broadway, uh, Siegel's Down Front, for a very long time, and there are fixtures at the theater, uh, and Scott had had a, a, a serious uh, accident, bicycling accident, uh, a few months oh. ago. And uh, it was good to see him back at the theater. I was very exciting about that. Yes, all right, so uh, we're going to talk about a handful of things here uh, from Off-Broadway. Uh, actually, let's start back on Broadway for a second. Um, Michael, we're going to talk about this again next week, but uh, Michael got a chance to see 
uh, Beth Level's understudy at the prom. So uh, tell us about the prom, Michael. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll save our discussion of the show itself um, for next week. Uh, but I, I did have to just talk about this because it was amazing. Uh, one of those rare things in the theater. I uh, went to see the prom last night, this 17th, Saturday, the 17th, and at eight o'clock. And about three hours before I got an email saying uh, that Beth Level, one of the leads, was going to be out. And, uh, you know, we were welcome to come to the show anyway, and they could try to reschedule us or if we wanted to cancel our tickets, we could come back. So I, I, I wanted to see the show because I had arranged to see it with my friend, uh, Bill Coyne, who's an actor. And, uh, you know, it was all sad and, uh, and I just didn't want to cancel at the last minute. So we went and, um, we, uh, uh, Bill got there at the very last minute because again, it's the weekend. And so of course there were travel problems and, uh, <clears throat> So we knew there was an understudy, but we didn't know who it was, and we didn't even get a chance to open the playbill to see uh, that it was going to be um, – uh, well, to see who it was going to be. And so uh, you know, we're, we're sitting there, and the curtain goes up. And uh, oh, before the curtain went up, Bill said, you know, he said, I heard – well, what he had heard was that the understudy was going on with no – rehearsal because the show just opened and it frequently happens that uh, that understudies are not uh, completely rehearsed or well rehearsed or rehearsed at all until uh, you know after the show opens so I don't know if that's true uh, I mean uh, I, I I cannot say how much rehearsal this person had uh, but anyway um, the the uh, curtain goes up and the show starts and the person who obviously was the the understudy for Beth was on stage, and Bill said, "Oh my God, it's Kate, um, and, uh. it's, and it's a woman named Kate Marilli, who only recently made her Broadway debut in the ensemble of My Fair Lady, at." Lincoln Center. Uh, she's done a few national tours, but not long ago, she was doing f featured roles in shows like musicals Tonight uh, off, off Broadway, which is where Bill worked with her. Um, and she was absolutely fantastic. You would never have known that she had anything less than complete rehearsal. There was one word in the second act that she stumbled on. Uh, she seemed to know the lyrics and the the music and the, the, the book absolutely cold. Her timing was perfection. So she, and that's not something you can do except in rehearsal, you know, rehearsal and running with people. So she must have I, I don't know what she did. She must have paid really close attention in watching the show night after night. Um, and she uh, this was can you imagine how exciting this must have been for her? Uh, she went on, if I understand correctly, she went on for the matinee as well. And then she went on for the evening. And, uh, you know, it, it, it must have been absolutely thrilling. Uh, the audience loved her. That she got a she got a wonderful, wonderful, vociferous response during the curtain call as she deserved. And I and it was a critic's performance because uh, it was you know scheduled to be a, a second or third night critic's performance. And as I say, we were given the opportunity to to cancel, but many people did not. I saw a lot of press who stayed, and the, so a lot of press saw this person uh, go on in a leading role in a fabulous wonderful great new musical and absolutely kill um so it's it could this could turn out to be one of those 
you know, stories that in the future, like Shirley MacLaine or um, uh, uh, Eve Harrington. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> I hope not. I hope not, Peter. Not all not all aspects of that story. Uh, but maybe Judy Kay, you know, I, I mean, sure. Uh, you know, we, we all know those uh, those understudy to the rescue stories. And I think this is a, a stellar example of that. And and it doesn't happen too often. So I am so glad that I did not cancel my tickets. Well, I just checked my email uh, to see if they were telling me the same thing. So, um, no, I haven't got anything yet. So I guess Beth Level is back, I guess. I mean, said, uh, uh, they said that I, I don't know the details. I'm not sure what, what was wrong, but they said they thought she might be back today. Okay. Yeah. So far, so good. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, Peter, let's head off Broadway for a moment where you saw a new production of The Other Josh Cohn. Uh, is it the West Side Theater? Um, yeah. yeah, so tell us about that. Oh, it's terrific. Uh, you know, there are some musicals that are feel-good musicals. This is a feel-great musical. Uh, I can't imagine anybody not having a wonderful time. It is so wonderfully human. That's what's so great about it. You really, um, you have experiences that you can really recognize in the middle of experiences that you would never recognize. Let me uh, tell you what I mean. Um, Josh Cohen gets a letter in the mail. In fact, it's more than a letter. What it is, is a check for a substantial amount of money, $56,000. Can you imagine? It's made out to him, but he has no idea why he's getting it, how it happened, who did it. So um, he winds up um, going on this odyssey to find out if indeed he's the Josh Cohen that uh, should be getting the um the, the check. And that's what it's all about. 90 minutes and it's about that. And it also deals with the fact that do you do the right thing when you're faced with getting a lot of money? Uh, should he have just cast a check and um, it, it came to him? It was uh, um, There is a, a, a wrinkle of why it came to him that makes him um, distressed. And it, because, you know, when you think you're getting this windfall and then suddenly you're not, um, it's, it's, you're still, it's impossible not to stop planning what you're going to do with the money when, when, you, when it's found money, literally in this case. So uh, that's the struggle of it. David Rosper and Steve Rosen wrote it, and they're in it. And they're both in, tremendously endearing. Uh, one of them plays uh, a narrator more than anything else, but uh, but they're both Josh Cohen in essence. Um, one is essentially Josh Cohen now, and one is Josh Cohen then. That's basically what goes on. But the rest of the cast, um, you know, the, even some of the musicians get dragged into the action, not in the John Doyle sense. I mean, they come in and actually play characters, but um, they're really, really quite wonderful. And um, they have to play characters of all different ages and types. Uh, and um, Kate Weatherhead, uh, who we've seen a lot, uh, is especially good at playing young and old. And I mean really old. So, um, so I recommend this without reservation whatsoever. Yes, I saw the original Off-Broadway production many years ago. Yes, I saw it at the Paper Mill Playhouse, where it was an odd choice for Paper Mill, because it's not a big show. And I don't know if it was successful there, but I'm very glad that it's had a renaissance, and it's at the West Side uh, Theater. And I do believe, I do believe that um, even though the music isn't traditional Broadway-type music, or even off-Broadway-type music, it's a wonderful score, and I look forward to uh, listening to the album, which I haven't done yet, but I, I look forward to it, because it's going to bring back wonderful memories. So I recommend the show heartily. 
Okay, so that's the other Josh Cohn over at the West Side Theater. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, and uh, uh, Peter, did you want to talk uh, about the lack of an Eve song for at the public theater? Well, um, uh, these poor souls at the public, I don't know what's going on, uh, but I don't know if the same person is sick, but I was supposed to go uh, to see Eve's song, Yes, a play at the public theater, and I was supposed to go on... Um, Friday, November second, uh, um, and um, no, it was it, it was canceled, and so I rescheduled for Friday the sixteenth, and no, it was canceled again. So I don't know what's going on there. I don't know if uh, as a result of this they'll extend. They're supposed to close on the ninth. So um, uh, if I were you and you have plans to see Eve's song, I would check uh, before adding out to the public uh, because something's going on. I'm not sure if it's the same person who is sick. I don't know any details of that, but uh, I do know that I was getting uh, uh, press uh, invites yeah. do during the period when they were when they were canceling performances. Uh, I guess they were trying to counteract the you know all that, but didn't know that they would have to cancel further. So yeah. Hmm. All right. Uh, before we wrap up, uh, let's talk just for a minute about William Goldman. Um, who um, the passed away this weekend as Times Obituary uh, led with the headline, William Goldman, screenwriting star and Hollywood skeptic, dies at 87, but he had quite the impact on Broadway. So, Peter, why don't you tell us about William Goldman? Yes, um, who arguably wrote the greatest book ever about Broadway uh, called The Season. Uh, he went to every show of the 1967-68 season. Even Mount Ahari was closed in Washington. He went down to Washington to see it. Even Lita had a little swan, a play that didn't open, uh, which was sort of a forerunner to Edward Albee's The Goat. It was about... Uh, a kid who falls in love with a swan uh, as opposed to a man who falls in love with a goat. Uh, he saw that one too. Um, he, he went here and there. He often went out of town and uh, saw them uh, evolve. And it was it was a season that um, nobody appreciated at the time. And he pointed out at the end of the book, he said, I think we'll look back at the season and talk about how wonderful it was. And while the musicals haven't held up very well, and they weren't good, well received that year, that was the year of Henry Street Henry and How Now Dow Jones and George M and uh, Darling of the Day and um, uh, some others. Well, it was also Hair, um, which his, his um, chapter on Hair is called brave new world um and so but the perceptions about um the business about critics um he certainly was no fan of clive barnes <laughs> and um made that quite clear and um frankly i think he was right in his opinion of clive barnes i think we'd have a very different broadway if we hadn't had clive barnes from for those 10 years that we uh, we did have him at the new york times and it was very interesting that when clive barnes moved to the post his reviews were far more indulgent than they were at the Times. And one could argue that that's appropriate because perhaps the Post readers um, would have different values in theater going um, than the Times readers would. But still, the only thing he really got wrong, um, if and I put quotation marks around the word, is was his appraisal of Mike Nichols, who he didn't like at all and felt that uh, he, he wasn't uh, a, a good force for Broadway. And of course, 
until he died, Mike Nichols certainly had a tremendous career. And um, so which doesn't necessarily make Goldman wrong or Mike Nichols right. But um, it's not as I mean, for example, um, he comes down hard on Harold Pinter saying um, we don't know if his reputation will last. Um, He talks about in the 19th century, the big writer was Richardson and who reads Richardson today. But uh, he was hot then. You know, maybe uh, Pinter won't be hot as time goes on. And Pinter certainly doesn't get produced um, on the same level that he did um, when he was alive. And granted, he's not writing any new plays. I'll, I'll certainly admit to that, which is easy to admit too. But but still, um, I'm not sure that people uh, regard Harold Pinter the way they did in the 60s when he was um, the writer that um, everybody was interested in because they couldn't even understand half the time what he was doing. So uh, it's quite it's quite a book. And I will say, I mean this, I think after it was published um, in the summer of 69, I remember when I got it and I remember my uh, reading, I couldn't believe what I was seeing, that Playbill title pages were being replicated in the book and all that. I remember my wife saying, are you there? You're awfully quiet. Oh, you bet I was. And I dare say (laughs) that for at least 15 years, I don't think a day of my life went by that I wasn't thinking of that book in one form or another. So I just thought it was terrific. And I was very sorry that um, Goldman didn't come back to Broadway in any real form. And of course, late in the career, we did hear that he was going to do a musical version of The Princess Bride, but um, he and Adam Gettle locked horns and um, didn't uh, wind up doing that. So it's really too bad that, um, but he, he gave every indication in the book that he wasn't coming back to Broadway. He didn't say that, but he gave every indication from the way he felt um, about the street that uh, he wasn't going to come back. And uh, But it's a wonderfully persuasive book. It, it certainly um, had um, a lot of predictions that have turned out to be true um, when he talked about the limited engagement is a promising thing that you can get stars come in for a little while. And uh, because they won't commit to a long run, to a run of a play contract or anything like that. So um, he thought the limited engagement would be something that would be very important. And uh, and that was really something, too. So um, so I mourn um, that. And I also mourn the day I went to see him in 1987. And uh, because we were going to have a 20, 20th year anniversary um, interview on uh, what had changed or what had not changed or how he felt. Uh, what did he stand by? What did he not stand by? And I went to his Park Avenue apartment, which was the first time I ever saw a widescreen TV that almost took up a whole wall. And um, and he said to me, you know, I hate when I'm interviewed. I've decided I'm not going to do it because um, it uh, I, I when I read myself in print, I, I suddenly feel I'm stupid. So I don't want to do it. And it broke my heart tremendously because I had a million questions. And I'm sorry I didn't say, OK, well, let me ask the questions. He probably would have said no, because then you'll quote me anyway. And it's the same thing. So so there was just no getting around it. He just wasn't going to do it. And um, th- this may be the first example where you hear all the time, don't meet your heroes, you know, because they'll disappoint you. And he did on that level. But he certainly didn't. Uh, in the season and whenever I go to the season to check a fact or look uh, to quote him or something like that there goes a half hour because I get right back into it again and um, and and read it tremendously so all right so that is uh, I'll have a link to Mr. Goldman's vast uh, number of books that he's written at Amazon. I'll also have a direct link to The, the Season, uh, a, a candid look at Broadway at Amazon. It, it 
It's really a must read. It's probably the first business book on Broadway that I ever read. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it is. If, if, if anyone hasn't read it, you must read it. You should be prepared for in what is in retrospect some very, very shocking homophobia. Um, you have to try to put yourself in back in 1967, 68, yeah. which is uh, very hard for us to do. But I just want people to know that. Um, I don't I, agree it, with that, Michael. You know, a lot of people have said that about this book, but um, but I disagree in, uh, quite a bit about that. Um, I think he comes on quite on the side of um, gays. Um, and what we have to remember, too, is um, that this is 1969. The book came out probably right around the time the Stonewall did. Exactly. Um, you know, it, it really did. I mean, I, it was the summer of 69. And of course, the summer of 69 is when Stonewall happened. But um, but he certainly goes to bat for, for gays when talking about the fact that many of the best plays of the last 20 years have been written by homosexuals, uh, most of the major musicals of the 60s. Um, I think he's very fair. I mean, he talked about homosexual directors who distort the work just as heterosexual directors do. There's, uh, it's equally true of heterosexual talent, he says. Um, and um, I, I, I do believe that um, the, the example of Staircase, a play that was um, about a, a, a gay man who was arrested for dressing like a woman on the street. And um, the, the actual playbill actually says time the present. So these were very difficult times. That wouldn't happen today, needless to say. And... Um, <clears throat> And he he talked about the fact that that homosexuals are human, and a lot of audiences, heterosexual audiences, don't want to acknowledge that. But this play helped them to see that, and um, and he took John Chapman to task for saying uh, for not reviewing Staircase. Oh, he left Staircase. That's right. He left Staircase at intermission, and he wouldn't um, go see Loot. He had somebody else go see Loot because, and uh, this is actually what Goldman says, he simply cannot tolerate homosexual plays. And, um, and most important is when he said um, if uh, their problem, talking about homosexuals, their problem, if problem it be, uh, maybe biological or mental. This is beyond any knowledge of mine. But notice, if problem it be, I mean, that would really indicate that um, he's doing more than psychiatrists were at that moment in time, because really, till 1972, it was considered a mental illness, and um, which is amazing for us to think now that it took that long for it to happen. But um, here's Goldman saying, if problem it be, which psychiatrists weren't saying. So, um, so I have a very different take on this and um yes on page two he uses the word fags i'll grant you but it doesn't take long before he uses the word broads too um uh, when referring to women <laughs> and you know these yeah i mean we've learned a lot in the years and i i can understand uh why a lot of people do feel the book is homophobic um but uh, reading those those lines really makes a big difference, and so um, I'll I'll go to bat um, for William Goldman um, being ahead of his time in dealing with um, uh, homosexuals, and um, so because well, we, we, we do have we do have some disagreement on that, but uh, but it's not 
certainly not to denigrate, discount, whatever, his tremendous achievement in, in, in the rest of the book, even if you do feel that way. And I, I just did want to say quickly that, uh, slightly off topic, but he wrote uh, the screenplay for All the President's Men. And I was, I'll never forget, I was uh, somewhere meeting, I was about to meet someone uh, after a show and I was in a, a bar and they had it on the TV at, uh, at the bar. And this was only like three years ago. And, uh, I, and I started watching it. And I got so into it mm. that I, I was trying, like, I was like avoiding going to, <laughs> to, go, to <laughs> yeah. meet the person that yeah. I want because I could not. It is one of the best screenplays ever. And he, he, it was an incredibly talented person. And that I think is one of the things, along with the season, that will, will stand as a monument to him. Can we do Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid yeah, on Broadway? Yes. Yeah, you know? I was just going to mention Butch Cassidy <laughs> as, as being a tremendous screenplay. The humanity that he gave those characters, the witty lines, uh, um, and all across the board. Uh, all three characters had wonderful lines and uh, very true to the character. And uh, so, yeah, yeah. But of course, for those of us who care about Broadway more than movies, and I certainly fall in that category, is the season by which I'll always remember him. Okay, so uh, before we get on to trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link that we each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. Many ways to listen to us uh, contain iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to find our podcast, you can get Broadway Radio's podcasts. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today, including all those links about Goldman uh, and uh, the uh, articles for Mike Birbigley and the cell phone. And, uh, and we didn't talk about the New York Times review uh, of King Kong, but we had planned to. But <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. those things. We'll talk about it in another week. But... Um, all that can be found at the show notes at BroadwayRadio.com. So, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's trivia? Well, I mentioned that the same opening number, although differently orchestrated, opened different musicals in 1952, 56, 62, and 68. What's the name of the song and the name of the four shows that the same song opened? And um, the shows were New Faces of 52, 56, 62, and 68, which all opened with a song called Opening. Um, though most of us refer to it as you've never seen us before, we've never seen you before. So John Moss and Greg Christensen were the only ones to get it. I'll be very interested to see if anybody can get this one this week. This one's really a killer. But it happened because I learned yesterday that Mercury uh, is currently in retrograde. Um, so, And that reminded me what all-female, I'm talking about the cast now, off-Broadway musical from 1994 – actually had a lyric that mentions both Mercury and Retrograde. Let me give a big hint, because I know this is a tough question. The song has a name that is the name of a famous song that's being sung on Broadway right now. So the song I'm looking for is also being sung right now eight times a week on Broadway. Obviously not the same song, but the same title of the song is being sung now eight times a week. But um, the show is from 1994, off-Broadway, all-female cast. Let's see if anybody can get that one. All right. If you have a clue to that, uh, email us at TriviaBroadwayRadio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Michael Portantier... 
and Peter Felicia. This is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radios this week on Broadway. Bye bye. 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 To fulfill some dumb fantasy ending But it sure didn't hurt She thinks porn's kind of fun yep. She plays we like a dude No, she doesn't smoke pot But she'll eat it in food I'm not scared to be mean Likes the quirks that I've got Always so down to earth And she's shy, which is hot Even mentioned the clown dude. That I got once, it's true But she couldn't care less been to Spain too. She says lots of kind things for her best compliment. So love your tastefully uncluttered apartment. Saint V came. Now there's someone in my picture frame. And that person has the same last name. Can you believe it? Cause I'm not making this shit up. Funny, that's a thing we never say. When ten things in our road, I'll go your way. Only when you have a perfect day. Just change one or two. If I could, I wouldn't change a thing.